Father God, from the great gifts that you've given us, we give back this small portion. And we pray that you would use these funds to encourage your kingdom here and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. How you doing, everybody? You guys recovering from the holidays? Because, man, Christmas around here was a whirlwind of activity. There was like something going on every day, and most of it involved a lot of coffee and sugar, which was awesome. You know, even the candy cane that we hand out, that's the traditional thing that pastors give people. Anybody remember why they give them the candy cane? Grazie's holding one back there. The candy cane is actually the shepherd's staff. So it's traditional for them to give one to parishioners as a treat. And it tastes like peppermint. But also, you know, that's the pastor gift. Uh, but now we're moving into a new year. Now, I've only been at Graceview for two years. Sometimes I sit down and talk with some of you that have been here 40-some years, and two years is like that. But there's been a lot going on, and the new year has a lot of great new opportunities unfolding. Every one of them does, right? We go through different ages and different eras, not only in our personal lives, but in our families and even in ministries. You start out, you're somebody's son or daughter, then you're somebody's mother or father, then some of you become grandfather or grandmother, then great-grandfather and great-grandmother. And churches really have this interesting kind of life that parallels that. As if you remember, when I first came out, to the area, it was to work with some churches that were on average 180 years old. That means some of them were a lot older and some were a little younger. The denomination, not that we're so into denominations, but this specific kind of church, this denomination, is the oldest in the United States of America. Founded all the way back about 317 years ago. And so through time, the gospel carries through different phases, different eras, different times. Do you think the United States was, well, it wasn't even the United States, right? 317 years ago. But there were folks here, and they founded this church, right? But do you think things were a little different than they are now? A little different. You know, my kids, one of my kids even asked me if there were colors when I was a little boy. <laughs> it's pretty common for younger kids to say, uh, uh, Pastor Chris, were there dinosaurs when you were little? <laughs> and we still got some dinosaurs around. No, I'm just kidding. But no, I mean, things change. But you know what hasn't changed? People haven't really changed. And the estate that mankind is in hasn't really changed. And the hearts of people haven't really changed. And what's really important in life has not really changed for thousands of years. When you look through the Bible, what was really important to them? All the way back to like Abraham, right? You're still looking at family, taking care of the people that you love and care about, making sure there's something for future generations, having a right relationship with the Lord. The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Which is interesting. It's not so different in regard to our religious life being in 2020. I can't even believe I'm saying we're in 2020. And being in 1520, it's actually not that different. Yeah, we've got phones now. My kids are still freaked out by the fact that not only did we not have cell phones when I was a kid, we didn't even have computers. We read about them 
in our encyclopedia, which was in 56 volumes on a big shelf. And if we wanted to know what Katie did was, we had to pull down a huge book and look in there, right? My kids have never seen an encyclopedia, right? They just Google everything. Siri, what's a Katie did? <laughs> we find out things. Information. One of the things that's changed and is different is information is so fast, right? When you look at the Great Awakening that's happening in China right now, you know the United States has been through a couple of theological Great Awakenings. They call them the First and Second Great Awakenings because the first one was first. And anyway, in China right now, they consider themselves to be having their Great Awakening. More than 200 million people have come to a saving knowledge of Christ out of a population of 2.2 billion in the entire United States of America, by comparison, we really only have about 320 million people. So it's almost like most of the entire population of the United States coming to saving faith. That's what's happening over there. But even 20 years ago, they said possibly only 1% of China was Christian. So that's an extraordinary event that's not done yet. We read about all these pastors getting sent to jail and persecutions and some of the things that happen. I know some of those guys. They're not afraid to go to the joint for Christ. I'm in no hurry. You know what I mean? But also notice how the freedoms that we have, normal, natural, civil, citizen freedoms that we have, are actually in many ways the effect of the fact that God started saving people in our culture five, six, and seven hundred years ago. What's he going to do politically to them as they come to know Christ and they start to think about the things like that every human being, every man, woman, and child is created in the image and likeness of God and is afforded certain rights because he says they are. Everyone. How will that change their culture? How will that change their understanding of self, the way their politics work? Do you see the way God transforms entire cultures one year at a time, generation into the next, usually by the coming of the gospel? Every nation that's ever been converted, every nation that's ever been converted, started with one person, right? Even back in, in the far north, in the Nordic lands, there was this guy named uh, Hubert. And Hubert showed up one day, and they had killed all of the other missionaries that had come there, right? It was up in Sweden somewhere, and they were still worshiping Thor because he had a cool hammer. I know now we have this great-looking hot Thor that's in the movies. He's got nice blue eyes and a low voice. and Yeah, that's not Thor. Thor was, to put it nicely, Thor was chubby. And he carried a hammer and he killed lots of folks. So all the missionaries that came there, they killed them and they sacrificed them on a tree. Doesn't that sound familiar? And Hubert went there and they said, well, you know, you can convert to worship in Thor by tomorrow, otherwise we're going to kill you on our tree, because we do this to all the missionaries that come here. Hubert went out in the middle of the night, and he cut the tree down. <laughs> and the king converted to Christianity, because he said, you know, our God must be false if you can cut down his tree. We've been worshiping this tree for a long time. And after the king converted, the people started to listen to the gospel. And eventually, the entire nation came to Christ. And we went from Vikings that went out on raids every six months, killing everybody, to people having prayer meetings and reading their Bibles. And this is, of course, a true story of history. This isn't fantasy. This is the way God changes the world. 
Now, it is contingent upon every church to have a personality in the same way that a person does, right? Every church has things it does well and things that it doesn't do as well. It has strengths and it has weaknesses. And they're not equal to any one person. Have you ever thought about in the Bible why it actually says we all need to be a part of a church because you all have different gifts and I haven't given all the gifts to any of you. Different gifts, different abilities, different abilities to think and understand, different abilities to do. Some people the gift is compassion. Other people the gift is theology. I've always said, and pastors really hate it when I say this, one of the least gifts you can get is theology. Why? Wait a minute. That's, what, that's the only thing I do, right? Well, here's the thing. For pastoral people and for those of us that go to seminary and do all this stuff, this stuff is so easy for us. We read these big, fat books full of theological knowledge, you know, and it's just like, hey, I, I just get it, you know? And everybody doesn't. But if that's as far as it goes, that's as deep as it goes, it is a direct recipe for being a Pharisee and not for being a Christian, right? Theology alone, barren, out of its context among real people with flesh and blood and real world problems can be more of a poison than a medicine. You know what I mean? So people usually think, you know, being a pastor or doing ministry in any way, like all of you do on your own, is going to be 90% theology and 10% people. But in the real world, isn't there always 90% people and 10% theology? Now, you guys already know, I will not compromise anything in this book. I don't compromise theology. I love theology. I get in these meetings with these pastors. Mark knows I go to these meetings like every month with these pastors. And we start in right away and we're just, <laughs> it's all just theology. And we're talking about stuff nobody cares about, nobody ever will. And some book some obscure guy wrote in like 10,000 years ago. And we love it. And we love it. But we all know this rule. It doesn't really matter until you're dealing with real people in real situations and a human context. Even the Bible itself, what is it talking about all the time? It's talking about people. It's talking about families. It's talking about sins. It's talking about redemption. It's talking about God, who is a personal God, sending his son to become a human person in order to interact with us and save us. It's all 100% kind of personal, isn't it? So theology, not applied to real-life circumstances, is just theory. One of the worst things you can ever have is a theory. Have you ever noticed how most of the greatest theories that have ever been have already gone by? Theories only work until you have to practically apply them, right? Like this morning, uh, we were late because I put on the emergency brake because the car was parked on a hill and I could not get it to unbrakeify. <laughs> now, for those of you that are mechanical, you know what not breakify means. <laughs> and... So, you know, it, it wouldn't come off. So I pull the, you know, it's got the latch, right? And I found out this morning, if you pull that latch hard enough, it will come right off. <laughs> but there's a wire that's connected to the latch, right? So we understand basic physics. The basic things that make a brake work... It's mechanical. It's not electrical. If it was an electrical thing, I'd be lost, right? I'm calling AAA, but it's mechanical. And I'm a guy, and I've got a hammer. You can fix anything <laughs> with a hammer. And there's a wire that goes that releases it, right? So I reach down to the pliers, and I pull the wire. And 
It comes off too. <laughs> so at this point, Danny and the kids are getting nervous. They're like, oh, we gotta go to the other car. Who's gonna grab the baby seat? I'm like, no, I'm fixing this thing. I'm, I'm gonna die and I'm down under there and I can't see anything. But, but I know the rules, right? The rules of mechanics are there's only really a few different devices. There's an arm and you push that down with your foot, right? And there's a spindle with little notches on it and that cranks back. So how many times would you be able to set a brake if there were no release button on it? One time. What are the odds this is the only time this brake was ever supposed to work? So I know there's something in there and I get in there and I start poking at things and pulling at things and then I hear this little snap and the brake releases, right? It took like 15 minutes maybe. But everything in God's world works that way on purpose. There are certain rules to life and things you do and things you don't do. And he is not an oppressive taskmaster out there making rules for you. But he has given you the rules to life. And it says this in scripture, so that you might be blessed. And that's why the rules are there. And they're good rules. Some of them, you'll know by heart from way back. Thou shalt not murder. It's one of my favorites. But there's a reason that he gives us it. He also gives us, thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt do these other things. And he doesn't give them to us arbitrarily. They're the rules for life that if you know the basic rule, you can get through just about any situation as long as you have a hammer. I'm joking about the hammer. <laughs> So I'm going to look at something now. We're going to go to Joshua, the book of Joshua. Because we've been set on going through some of the miraculous deliverances of God. And this is a weird one. Last week we went through the deliverance in the Red Sea, where the people of God had finally gotten to the place where they were going to be destroyed by Egypt, and he parts the ocean, and they walk through on dry land with walls of water on both sides. That's a positive deliverance where he does something. This is in some ways kind of a negative deliverance where he's trying to do something else, and they're just kind of along for the ride. It says here, now Jericho was shut up inside, and outside, because of the people of Israel, none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Now, some of you guys have been to war. I know it. I've never been to war. But if this is the directions for the conquest of a city, it can easily seem kind of ridiculous, right? You're probably thinking... Uh, Air Force, you're thinking strikes, you're thinking missiles, you're thinking guys with sniper weapons, you're thinking all kinds of things. You're not thinking walk around the walls because they're shut up in there. That's just no good way to conquer a city, right? Do you think God doesn't know that he's testing their faith and telling them to do something that's outside of their understanding? He's telling... God often tells us to do a small thing and be faithful rather than a big thing that's very dramatic. <laughs> Seven priests, we'll use the word pastors there, not to aggrandize the position, but in their culture, that's what it was. They were the pastors. Shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. 
On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets, and when they make the long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant. And let the seven priests bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And, the and he said to the people, go forward, march around the city. Let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now, you guys remember what the Ark of the Lord is, right? Because you've all seen Raiders of the Ark, which is one of the best movies ever. Inside the Ark were a few different things from the deliverance of the people under the hand of Moses. And so whenever the Ark is out there, partially what they're doing is remembering the great previous deliverances of God, which he has done among the people. One of them was a golden jar of the manna, the bread that fell from heaven that fed them even when they were in the wilderness. Another was the rod of Aaron, that he did amazing works with, that had budded and had flowers growing on it. Another was the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone of the law. They were inside the ark. So the ark represented God's presence among his people, and it walked before them. And notice there were seven, and they walked around for seven days, and they blew seven trumpets, Seven being the number that God uses to represent fullness and completion, totality, and even eternity. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Verse 13. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually, and the second day they marched around the city and returned to it in the camp. They did so for six days, but on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we've sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver, all the gold, every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and soon the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. 
so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And they devoted all in the city to destruction. Now, I know that's a heavy story, but it's telling something about the way God does things. There was a thing to be done in a certain way in order to get the goal. God still today gives us a certain way for things to be done in order to be blessed. And there's a certain way for things to be done, frankly, in order to be cursed. Now, it tells us a lot about these people in this city and why God rejected them. But there was one lady who was saved, right? What was her name? Rahab. Now, what we find out in another place is that Joshua once sent two spies to the city, two spies to see what was going on there, and they came back with their report. But when the Jerichites were going to find them and kill them, she knew that they were from the Lord. For whatever reason, God had given her this by grace special insight into who these people are and what they were doing. And instead of turning them over, she hid them. One of them was a man named Solomon. And Solomon was the father of Obed. And Obed is the man who married Ruth, those of you who have studied Ruth. And Obed and Ruth had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son named David. Now, what it doesn't say exactly right here, that eventually God blessed Rahab because she sided with God's people, even against the entire world. Even against the entire world. And so not only did he save her from destruction when the city fell, but he blessed her and he gave her a husband of her own. And that husband's name was Salmon, the one who was the spy that was sent into the city by Joshua. And eventually we turn to Matthew chapter 1. You didn't see that coming, did you? Matthew chapter 1, coming off of Christmas season, where we've been deeply vested in the Christmas story and the birth of the Christ. The first chapter of Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world from the beginning until then, and the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. We all know that story, right? And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and the reason that he doesn't include all the brothers is because he's going for the lineage of the Messiah. <laughs> and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Now, Tamar is of questionable moral relevance in the story. One of the things I want you to notice is that the only four women mentioned in the story have a questionable presence in the Bible. What is God doing putting these people in the line of the Messiah? He doesn't name any of the other women, but he names Bathsheba. And frankly, he mentions Rahab. Let's go on. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. The next one is, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Does anybody remember her name? Bathsheba. There's a reason why these are the only four women put into the text. Frankly, three of them were not even Jewish. It says so plainly in the text. 
It talks to, speaks to the universal salvation that God was doing through the Jews and in the Jews, but eventually to the entire world, inclusive of the Jews, but of everyone who believes in the name of Christ. From every tribe, every nation, every race, every tongue. Somebody could go here and say, you know that Jesus, he's a, he's a mixed race. He's not even a pure-blooded Jew, right? And we have to remember there is no such thing. When you go back to the beginning, God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a Chaldean, like all of the other Chaldeans. And God said to him, I will make you a nation. I will make you a people. I will make you a race. So the thing that separated him unto his own people was God's administration, not anything in his DNA or bloodline. And so these other people were incorporated into this thing and God's great deliverance that he brought through the conquest of Jericho. It's an interesting thing. Now God has made a new nation. Do you notice that in the scriptures it talks about that in that exact language? Are not the church a nation separated and holy unto God? Are not we a people, though before we were not a people? Are we not the children of God, though before we had no father and we had no mother? Hasn't he called us and separated us unto a distinct relationship with each other? I'm going to do that thing I do again. I want you to look to your left and to your right. Look at the people around you. These are the people whom God has put in your way, in your path, to bless you and to be blessed by you. If God is going to deliver all of you, he will also deliver every one of you. Now, the greatest deliverance you could ever get is salvation itself, which has been given to you. But now, for this next year, one of the things we're going to keep in mind is now we need to work to increase the kingdom, not only here, but until the entire earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. Until everyone on this planet is a brother or sister in Christ. That's our goal. That's our end. That's our agenda. God may do it through whatever weird means he figures out because he's always got some kind of a thing going. But I promise you, he will do it because he already said he will. And he does not lie. Let's pray. Lord, our God and Father, you have called us together as a people. And we are blessed by you, Lord God. Help us to rise to the occasion, Lord God, and accept the opportunity. If you tell us to go left, let us go left. And if you tell us to go right, let us go right. But let us follow you wherever you lead us. Because you are good and you love to bless your people. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please rise as we turn in our hymnals. To number 448.
and receive God's blessing. I only give you this blessing as a representative, as an envoy, as an ambassador, but from the things that you've already heard out of his word, from the prayers that you've prayed and the songs that you've sung, you should be expecting the blessing of God. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and may he give you peace. Amen. Amen.